The text that we're looking at today for our Advent series called The King Shall Come is Mark 1, verses 1 to 8. This is the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the gospel of the Lord. So we're in week two of our Advent series. Advent, again, means coming, and we're focusing on the coming of Jesus at Christmas as a picture of the coming of Jesus on the last day. And last week, we introduced the series by talking primarily about how Jesus comes to us. Remember, we went through the Palm Sunday account, and we talked about how Jesus comes knowing all things, in control of all things, and showing us the playbook for how he is going to come in the scriptures so that he can come to us ultimately. But until then, he comes to us ordinarily, through the word preached, through baptism and the Lord's Supper administered, through the hands that help brothers and sisters in Christ. This week, we're going to focus, I guess, a little bit more on ourselves and focus on how we can receive Christ as he comes to us, not just ultimately on the last day, but every day as we wait for him to come. So we start the beginning of Mark's gospel. We looked at Mark 11 last week. We're skipping now back to the very front of this gospel. And uh, we're looking at how Mark wants to frame the person of Jesus. You know that you do this whenever you maybe write an email or even if you have a tough conversation with somebody, you frame the conversation, right? You, you say a couple things that lay a foundation for what you're about to say. So, so Mark is starting this gospel. He's laying a foundation for what is Jesus all about Well, Jesus is going to be the one who fulfills prophecy, the one that John preaches about here in this text. So we're going to start right at the beginning and look at what Mark does. He quotes from the prophet Isaiah and he says, prepare. You can see in this quote twice, he says, prepare. Preparation is the main theme of this text. Thinking about who is going to come and appropriately acting as we look forward to his coming. And then Mark says, that that preparation happened in what happens next with John the Baptist. He says, we are supposed to prepare. The Old Testament has been telling us, prepare for this coming Messiah. And so, John the Baptist. So let's look at what John the Baptist does. He fulfills what this prophecy to prepare tells us would happen. It says that as it is written in the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way as a voice. A voice. John was going to come as a voice for preparation. I think if we're in the Christmas season, we think about preparations in the terms of maybe putting up decorations or making sure the house is clean or making sure the presents are bought or making sure the food is made. There are all sorts of things maybe on your Christmas to-do list. How many of you are right on track with your Christmas to-do list? We usually find out about this time of year that we're a little bit behind on what maybe we were supposed to be buying or preparing 
But this is not the type of preparation that John is talking about. The preparation that he is making for us is a preparation of preaching. It's a preparation that is done with words. Words that you need to hear. Words that are supposed to affect you, that are supposed to seep down into your soul. And that's hard. Because we hear so many words. I mean, think about how much content comes into your ears and your eyes daily. You are hearing so many words, so much preaching from the world that this is how you are supposed to act. This is what you are supposed to value. This is what you are supposed to do. God sends you a voice. He says there will be words that you need to hear, and those words themselves will prepare you. What will they prepare you to do? To make straight paths. To prepare a way for this Lord, this Messiah, this Jesus, who is going to come by making a straight path for him. You say, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to make a straight path for Jesus? Well, in in their culture at that time, roads were not as well-maintained as we might think of in our day today. I know some of you have complaints about the roads even today, but it's better than it was back then, trust me. If a king was coming to your town, you would actually often build a road for him to come in. You could think about this maybe in the context of something like the Olympics, right? Um, When the Olympics come to a city, the city will build all sorts of infrastructure that might not get used after the Olympics are done, but it's built for that moment because that is such an important occasion in the city's history. There's so much that is going to come out of that that it will build whole structures that will be used for a couple weeks and then in some cases lay dormant for the rest of history. This is what John is telling us to do through the prophet. He is preparing a straight path, preparing a unique, special thing for Jesus. Maybe another way you can think about it is like walking a red carpet. Red carpet doesn't really fit anywhere else. I mean, maybe if you like grew up in the 70s, you thought red carpet was cool for like a hot minute, but most people don't have red carpet in their house anymore. It's because red carpet is bold and it is loud and it overpowers everything else in the room. But we use it in the context of famous people walking into a special event because we want to draw attention to them. In the same way, John is saying we ought to make a straight path, a red carpet for Jesus. Make this a special occasion for him to come. Prepare ourselves to welcome him. So how does this happen? Well, the text tells us that John appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and that the whole Judean countryside was coming out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized in the Jordan River, and that John wore clothing made of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. So let's start here. Who was John? Well, we we can kind of know who John was by what he wore. You see it here. He was wearing clothing made of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. This would have been immediately recognizable as, uh, as hearkening back to a previous figure in history. You can kind of think about it like if, if you saw a pop singer who was wearing a shimmering glove on one of his hands, you would know that he was channeling Michael Jackson, right? He's, he's trying to show that he has been influenced by Michael Jackson. John is doing the same thing. If you look back in the book of 2 Kings chapter 1, uh, there is a king by the name of Ahaziah. He sends a a troop of men to go consult a false god. But while they're on the way to this false god, the prophet Elijah receives a word from the true god. And God says to Elijah, go confront these guys, stop them in their path, and send a message back to Ahaziah. 
So the men are confronted by Elijah, the true prophet of God. They come back to the king, and the king asks them, what kind of man was it who came to you to meet you and who told you this? And they replied, he had a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. And the king says, that was Elijah the Tishbite. Like immediately by what he was wearing, he knew who this person was. And John is doing the same thing. He's saying, I'm like Elijah. Well, what does it mean to be like Elijah? If you remember Elijah's story back from the Old Testament, you remember that Elijah spoke to God's people in a time where most of God's people had forgotten about God. They had, they had disregarded the word of God, and even if they worshipped God in name, their heart was not in it. Many of them worshipped false gods, false deities of other cultures. And so Elijah was sent by God to preach to this culture, and part of his work was how he dressed. He dressed in such a strange way in order to signal to the people that he was preaching to that they were so far from God that they could not even understand God's prophet. He was so different from them that they had to be uncomfortable in his presence. You ever had this happen? You go to some sort of gathering maybe, or you're out at the grocery store, and you see somebody who's dressed very differently than you would dress. There's an immediate uncomfortability, right? You may be be okay with how they're dressing, but but you'd be like, I'm never going to wear that. Or what kind of person are they? I don't know if I could talk to them. Wearing the different clothes in a a certain setting can make people uncomfortable. I actually found this out the hard way. A couple years ago, I went to a pastor's gathering for the retirement of uh, another pastor, and I thought it was business casual. Turns out it wasn't. It was, it was shirts and ties for everybody. And so there I am with my khakis and my, my uh, Ralph Lauren you know, plaid shirt, and, and everybody else is wearing shirts and ties. And let me tell you, I was self-conscious the entire night. Maybe you've had a moment like that. You dress differently than everyone around you. It, it makes people notice you. It makes people wonder, why are you like that? Elijah was trying to make the people around him uncomfortable, saying, when God comes to you, he is so ununderstandable to you that it's like the way you look at me and the way I dress. By the way, as a tangent, this is sometimes why pastors will wear uh, what's called an alb. It's a long white robe. They'll often wear a stole with it as well. Uh, some people are uncomfortable with that. They'll say, well, that seems too like, formal or, or too distant. You're, you're not real. You're not authentic with us. Now to say, exactly. That's the reason to wear that. So that when you come into the house of God, you think to yourself, I'm in a place I'm not really supposed to be because of my sin. The things of God are so holy, they are so different from me, that I must come here to repent. I am not welcome here in my sin. Now you might be wondering, well, pastor, you don't wear a white robe most Sundays, and that's true enough. I do wear it, though. I wear it on Easter Vigil, and I wear it on Ash Wednesday. You know why? Easter Vigil is the moment where Christ defeats death. He defeats the thing that should make every one of us completely uncomfortable. The fact that you're going to die. It might be soon, it might be a while from now, but you are going to die. And on that day, I want you to see the holiness of a man who can beat death. And on Ash Wednesday, we consider our own death. We realize that we are dust, and to dust we will return. Ashes to ashes, we say on that, on that Wednesday. And so you should be also uncomfortable on that day, realizing that you're not going to keep living the way that you've always lived. Someday, your body will break down, you will breathe your last, and at that moment, you will meet God. And it'd be good to be more uncomfortable now than uncomfortable on that day. How Elijah and how John dressed was to indicate to the people that they should be uncomfortable. And whether or not I'm wearing something that makes you uncomfortable, you should be, because God's word is being spoken, and you are unholy people. 
By your nature, you are not uh, allowed to stand in the presence of God. Nothing unholy can come near God. God's law is pronounced to you about how you ought to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You have no business being around him. The only reason you can is because, of course, John will also call you to repentance, and that repentance leads to forgiveness, and that forgiveness means you are welcome in the house of God as a beloved son or daughter through baptism. But the point of the preaching, the point of the preparation is to say, the way things are, they can't still be that way. Maybe you've noticed this. As you prepare your house for Christmas, you look around and you say, well, maybe I can live in it this way, but when everyone else comes over, we better scrub the washrooms, or we better sweep the floors, or we can't have those fingerprints on the windows. We need to make sure that the garbage is taken out. We need to make sure the dishes aren't piling up in the sink. Whatever the thing is, you do this, right? You prepare your house for other people. Because you might be comfortable, but you shouldn't be when someone's coming over. So what are our three to-dos we learn from John? John comes out in the wilderness dressed like this to make the people uncomfortable, and then he tells us three things that we ought to do to prepare for Jesus' coming. And those three are the three notes, uh, points in your note sheet if you're following along. The first of those is that we ought to go to the wilderness. Notice that John shows up in the wilderness. Now, the wilderness would have been out by the Jordan River where he was baptizing, about 20 kilometers or so from the city of Jerusalem. If you're thinking about causing a stir, if you're thinking about planting a church, making a gathering so you can have lots of people listen to your preaching, you don't go out in the middle of the wilderness and start preaching. You go right to the heart of Jerusalem where all the people are. But that's not what John does. John goes out to the wilderness. And he does that on purpose because the wilderness is an interesting motif in the entire of Scripture. For us, I think in Ontario, we're a little bit um, maybe off-center on what the biblical idea of a wilderness is because when we think of wilderness, we think of going up north. We think of, of no cars and no buses and no streetcars. We think of decent cell service sometimes. We think of porta potties We think of getting away from the city. That's what we think of. But if you were to tell an Israelite that what northern Ontario looks like is the wilderness, they would have said, not a chance. That's not the wilderness because there is so much life there. Of course, there's not life as we consider it in the city, but there are, there are plants and there are animals. There's running water. There are, there are things that cause life in that part of the world. What they thought of as a wilderness would be more like this. Arid desert, where nothing could grow, nothing could live. You could only be out there for a little while because you had to bring everything that you would need along with you, and there was a pretty good chance that there were some wild animals or some inclement weather that were going to ruin your day or maybe even your life. So John goes out to the wilderness. Why? Well, because the wilderness was this idea of the place where you meet God. Did you ever notice this in the scriptures? That God sends Abraham to the wilderness with the promise to make him a great nation? That God wrestles with Jacob in the wilderness? That God directs the life of Joseph when he's in the wilderness to care for his people in Egypt? That Moses meets God at the burning bush in the wilderness? that God sends his people out into the wilderness to meet him at Mount Sinai. King David spends much of his life in the wilderness on the run from those who want to attack him. And it was on that run in the wilderness where David wrote most of his beloved Psalms. It was in the wilderness where Elijah was comforted by God after Jezebel wanted to kill him. And ultimately, Jesus both meets and defeats the devil's temptations in the wilderness. He spends a good amount of time with his disciples preaching in the wilderness. Whenever he prays to the Father, he goes out into, you guessed it, the wilderness. And finally, he dies outside the city of Jerusalem in the wilderness. And the Bible even culminates with this idea. In the book of Revelation, uh, John sees the church pictured as a woman 
And it says that the woman fled to the wilderness to be taken care of by God until Jesus comes again. The biblical idea of the wilderness is the place where you meet God. A place where there is nothing else to rely on but God. A place where your mortality stares you in the face. Your insufficiency, your dependency is always on your mind. That is the place where you meet God. And some of you are there right now. Because of whatever it is going on in your life, whether it's your money, or it's your work, or it's your family, a lost loved one, a chronic illness, a broken relationship, whatever it is, like you're in the wilderness. You feel it right now. You feel the insufficiency of life this side of heaven, that you have nothing left to rely on but God. You might think that that's painful, that's frustrating, that's disappointing, and I understand it. in some sense from a human point of view it is. But trust that that's the place where you are going to meet God. Because to the extent to which you think you can pull off your own life, that you can work hard enough, that you can build up enough storehouses of whatever you think you need to live, you will not need God. And on that last day, God will call you like the rich young ruler, you fool. You thought you could be secure in your own accomplishments. But if you know the wilderness, if you've been there, if you are there right now, you know that is a place to meet God, to trust only in him. Some of you are not in the wilderness right now, though. You, you might say, oh, yeah, maybe I have been there in the past, and maybe I'm resonating with what you're saying, Pastor, but I'm not there right now. Like, things, they're going okay. It's a time to go to the wilderness, to work on actually finding that uncomfortability in this life in order to meet God. I mean, think about it. Many of these people actually purposely went to the wilderness. Of course, God met Moses in the wilderness, and Moses just happened to be there already, but Jesus purposely went out in the wilderness. Could you do the same thing? Could you find a way to make your life uncomfortable so that you could trust in God more? For some of you, that's how you manage your money. You, you have enough money to be comfortable, happy even. But what would it mean if you could be generous? To, to actually put some of that money away for the good of others. Whether it's to the ministry of the gospel here at our church, or to your neighbors in your community, those people who you might find out need something. What if you could give in a way to be actually sacrificial so that you couldn't keep living your life at the same comfortable level that you are right now? Or what about your time? I mean, could you be uncomfortable with your time? I think actually what most of us think of when we think of being uncomfortable with our time is doing more. Like maybe I could do more for church or something like this. I actually think that's the wrong direction to go. What if you could be uncomfortable with your time by doing less? Our society is addicted to doing stuff. Like, when's the last time you were bored? It just doesn't happen. We fill our lives with so much stuff that actually, in some sense, we're comfortable with the overwork, the jam-packed schedule, the I'm so busy. Maybe it would be more uncomfortable to not do stuff, to make space in your life, to actually take time to text or call somebody in need, to not just send a check, although that's good, but to actually check on them multiple times a week. Maybe it would be the time that you would sacrifice in order to just be in your Bible and not do it to accomplish some task like I'm reading through the Bible in one year or I'm reading a chapter a day, but just to open the book and to look at the words. No agenda, no time frame, no schedule. What about prayer? 
Do we pray just to get all of our to-do list items that we want God to be aware of? None. Or do we pray just to bask in the glory of who God is? To say, hallowed be your name, and to just breathe out and enjoy that moment. You know, the ancient Christians thought of it this way. We think of tithing very often in the terms of money, like that you would give 10% of your income to the work of the gospel. But that the ancient Christians, they also thought that you should do something like that with your time. That you should actually, in the same way as you intentionally tithe your money to the work of your church, you should intentionally set aside a portion of your time for the worship of God. That you should take some of your time and say, I can't use this to be productive, to make a name for myself, to earn more money, I'm going to set it aside and say, I'm going to work on less hours than everybody else because I trust in God. If you're comfortable right now, if you're not in the wilderness, maybe one of these ways can bring you to that wilderness where you can meet God. So John goes out to the wilderness and calls us out there as well. And then he says, hear the word. Hear the word. He preaches, right? He preaches this baptism of repentance, And we'll talk exactly what that baptism of repentance is, but let's just talk first about the preaching of the word. God's word is here to set you straight, to bring to you a message that the rest of the world cannot give you. It deals with the biggest problem that all of us have. It's our sin and our death. Most of us want like a a charismatic leader or a guru or something like this. We look for the the Instagram model who has perfectly curated her life so that that we can try to be like her. Or we can listen to the intellectual who has all the right ideas so that we can set ourselves straight so that when we get into those tough conversations about ideology or sociology or politics, we can be prepared to give them a good answer. We think that's what we need a lot of time, just something to help us be a little bit better. But the preaching of the word is not, you get a little bit better. It's your bad, in fact, completely corrupt, deserving of hell, but... Jesus, but forgiveness, but God's unconditional love and grace. God's word tells you to give up on yourself, that your life this side of heaven without God is meaningless, but Christ has stepped into your place and lived his perfect life for you. You can go back to your life of trying to get a little bit better, trying to work a little bit harder, try to pull it off just a little bit more, or you can hear the word that you are not enough. That was the message that John was preaching. The word says, repent. And that's exactly what John did. He preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, we do have to take a moment on this baptism of repentance because sometimes this is confusing for people. It's not the same baptism as we would practice right here with this baptismal font in 2023. The baptism that we practice is what Jesus instituted before he ascended into heaven when he said, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teach those who are baptized to obey everything that I have commanded you. It is that same baptism that Peter says saves you. It is the same baptism that Paul says gives you the Holy Spirit. It is the same baptism that forgives your sins. But that is not the baptism that John was talking about here in this text. The baptism of repentance that John was talking about was something of an an interlude between two forms of baptism that were very well known in Christian history. Of course, the one in the New Testament you know, I've just taught you about. But the Old Testament version of baptism was a ceremonial washing that anyone who wanted to come into the nation of Israel had to go through if they were not born an Israelite. So whatever, you're an Egyptian, Ethiopian, whatever, and you realize that Yahweh is the true God and you want to follow him and they say, okay, you, you you have to be part of our nation and you say, okay. Well, part of that process would be getting this ceremonial washing, a baptism of sorts, which would bring you into the nation. Now John comes and he starts preaching a baptism of repentance, but where does he start preaching it? 
right outside Jerusalem. Not in the nations, but to the Jews. He says, now this baptism that brings you into the family of God is not just something reserved for those outside the nations who come into Israel, but it is for everyone, including Israelites. What John says to his people is no longer is it about what nation you are part of, but it is about your repentance and the reception of the forgiveness of sins. And so we should hear that from John as well. That I'm not more righteous because I've been a Christian my whole life, or I come from a Christian family, or I live in a Christian nation, because I can check Christian on my census form, or because I know the books of the Bible, or I have Bible verses on my wall, or I pray with my kids before I go to bed. None of that matters for whether or not you are a Christian. What matters is are you repentant of your sins? And have you received the forgiveness of Jesus? That is a different word, isn't it? In a world built on performance, that says constantly be a little bit more than you were yesterday, the gospel says give up on yourself so that you can trust in Jesus who has done it for you. And how is that for a message in the wilderness? When you finally come to the end of yourself and you realize that you are insufficient, to hear the word that God says, it's okay that you're insufficient, that's why I sent Jesus. So John tells us to go to the wilderness, to hear the word, and finally to make straight paths. We talked about making straight paths earlier in the sermon, right? This idea that you would build a road for a king who was coming to you. But let's meditate on that idea of building a straight path, of building a road for a king. You know, because you see all the orange cones on the road, that construction takes a long time. And we could argue about government bureaucracy and red tape and whatever, but it still, it just takes a long time, okay, to build a road. There is a lot of investment, financial and human, in building a road. And what God is inviting us to consider is that making a straight path for Jesus is going to require investment, intentionality, and sacrifice. It is going to require that we take things that we have, that we use for ourselves, and we give them to God. It's going to mean our time, it's going to mean our energy, it's going to mean our skills, it's going to mean our money, it's going to mean all sorts of things that we have to put into Jesus, into investing in making the straight path for him. And it's going to take intentionality. Again, we can complain about the roads. I feel like this whole sermon is like tangent, like just a joke about road construction in Toronto, but like roads need to have people working on them. Right? You know this. You see all those red cones, and you're like, why is it one lane when it could be four lanes? There's no workers there. We get irritated by this because we know you need to consistently work on building a road. We need to consistently work on making a straight path for Jesus. This is not one time. This is not a couple times a month. This is not just on Sunday mornings. This is a consistent, everyday sort of thing where we are preparing the road for Jesus. And finally, it requires sacrifice. You know what road workers are doing when they're working on a road? Nothing else. This is actually maybe even more pronounced in their culture. Uh, Because roads were not something that were commonly maintained or built with a regular basis, uh, if you wanted to build a road, you had to take a whole bunch of people who had other jobs and say, you can't work at your job now, you need to come work on this road that we're building for the king. You can't be a, whatever, a carpenter right now, or you can't be a banker right now, or whatever it was. Like, you have to come help us build the road. That's the same for us. There are things that we obsess our lives over, the things we're working for, and God says, those need to take second place. What comes first right now is building the road, is making the straight path for Jesus. So what is it? The thing that you're thinking about most of your day, does that thing need to take second place to a relationship with God, with hearing his word, of meeting him in the wilderness? 
Now, I think this conversation is lost if we don't think finally about where does this road go? Like, of course, we can invest and we can be intentional and we can be sacrificial. And you might be thinking to yourself, yeah, I can do all those things, except what direction do I go? Well, let's think about Jesus. Remember who the way is for. The straight path is for Jesus. And where is Jesus coming? He's coming to the cross. He came to earth to go to the cross. He did not come to earth to teach you how to be a good person. He did not come to earth to help you get a little bit more successful or prosperous. He came to earth to die for you because you were so wicked that nothing less than the death of God was sufficient to pay for your sins. But he did it with that intentionality, that investment, that sacrifice, because that's how much God loves you. So what does it mean to make a straight path for the king who is going to the cross? It means to remove all the things that would stop you from repentance. All the projects that you have built up in your life that give you meaning and purpose, those self-salvation ideas. If I'm only like this, then I'll be okay. I'll be somebody. I'll be valuable. I'll be loved. I will be acknowledged. I will advance. Kill those things and repent. Make straight the path for Jesus to the cross because this is not about you. It is about him dying for you. So let's finish with this thought today. How you prepare depends on who is coming. You prepare differently for your best friend than your mother-in-law. And you prepare differently for one person to come over than 12 people to come over. How you prepare depends on who is coming. And so how you think about what John is saying about how you prepare, about that repentance idea, completely depends on what you think of Jesus. Is your Jesus little? He doesn't take up that much space? He only needs a few things adjusted? Is your Jesus quiet? He's not going to take over the room? Is your Jesus passive? He's not going to get in your personal space. Well, then you're going to prepare a certain way. But if your Jesus is big, and he takes up a lot of space. If your Jesus gets in your personal space, if your Jesus adjusts things in your life, you're going to prepare differently. If you want a small Jesus, friends, a Jesus who doesn't really care so much about what your life is like, how you prioritize your time, your energy, your money, your relationships, then you will not have room for him when he comes because he is a big Jesus. He is a Jesus who takes over all things. In fact, the Psalms say he puts everything under his feet. That Jesus is not just here to take up space, though. He is here to order your life so that you can be right with God. And if you want that, then you will move everything in your life to prepare room for him. Later in this service, we're going to sing the song, Prepare Him Room. And I encourage you as we sing that song to meditate on the things that fill up your life and ask yourself, is there room for Jesus here? And I trust that the Holy Spirit will work on you to repent of those things and to clear space for the King who shall come. Let's pray. Jesus, we look forward to your returning. We ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would lead us to repentance for the things that crowd our lives out, the sins that we continue to commit. We would ask that you would work those hearts of repentance in us so that we can find the clarity and the focus on you that we need as you come. We ask these things in your name. Amen.